Good afternoon, uh, ladies and gentlemen. It's a real pleasure today to have with me Paul Martin. Uh, as many of you know, Paul was finance minister for Canada between 1993 and 2002, and he was also prime minister of Canada from 2003 through 2006. He was as well the inaugural chair of the finance minister's G20, and I am going to, in a moment, turn to his focus on the development of the L20 concept, which ultimately became the G20. So, welcome, Paul. Well, it's good to be here, Alan. <laughs> Paul, let me take you back just briefly. I mean, you have been one of the advocates for the creation of the G20. In fact, as early as uh, 2004, you had uh, begun to advocate for something you called the L20. In 2005, you wrote a foreign affairs article, and then in 2006, you gave a speech in uh, June of that year uh, talking about the requirement for an L20. So the real the question I have is, you know, why have you been such an advocate for a form of leaders' summit, which we're going to see in China, obviously in September? Well, the, the re, when I was a, the finance minister and obviously made the made the the the, uh, the pitch uh, to have to have the G20 created at the finance minister's level was one of the reasons, certainly one of the main reasons, was it made no sense for the G7 countries without nations like China, India uh, at the table, how the, the G7 really no longer had the economic clout uh, that was required to, to, to play the role that the G7 had historically played, and that the G20 uh, was the logical substitute at the finance minister's level, and if it was that the case, why wouldn't it be the logical uh, successor at the leader's level? And in fact, one of the countries that I worked with the closest as we worked to have the G20 created at the leaders' level was, in fact, China. Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabo, who were in power in China at that time, were my closest allies on this. As you know, all of the other countries supported having the G20 at the leaders' level, except the United States uh, at that time. George Bush was not against it. He just wasn't prepared to commit to it. And I've always congratulated him for having finally done it after the 2008 summit. But China played a very, very important role in, in the elevation of the G20 from the finance ministers to the, uh, to the leaders level. I noticed in, you know, kind of these early pieces that you wrote or spoke, and then subsequently, of course, you frequently uh, kind of used a phrase that the G20, once it had been declared the G20 in 2008, was intended to make globalization work. What did, what did you mean, what do you mean by that phrase? Well, first of all, let's understand. The G20 is not the G7. The G7 is seven compatible economies, seven uh, uh, compatible political systems. The G20 represents uh, 19 uh, of the world's biggest, strongest global economies, but also a number of the regional, uh, it's the strongest regional economies. For instance, South Africa is one of Africa's strongest uh, economies. It's not necessarily as strong as some countries who are not in the, G, in the G20. What is essential here is that, in fact, the world has to come together 
all of the regions of the world to make globalization work. No one uh, can be can be kept on the outside looking in. And the kinds of agreements that, for instance, the London summit, when they said we're not going to engage in protectionism uh, despite uh, the 2008 recession, is the kind of thing that, in fact, justified uh, the creation of the G20. Now I believe that the fundamental issue is the strengthening of the great multilateral institutions. When you look at the issues which threaten the world, uh, threaten globalization as we see it, these are issues that go beyond the power of any single country, no matter how powerful. Climate change is one. The whole question of how do you deal with refugees, how do you handle, in the case of Ebola, how do you handle the threat of pandemic disease? No country can deal with this alone. And so making globalization work, in my opinion, uh, which has to be uh, what legitimizes uh, the G20, has, has to be the strengthening of the great multilateral institutions. You certainly, in your video, talk about the increasing the strength of the great, of the multilateral institutions, and you describe it as reopening a priority, which suggests, I suspect, that it wasn't necessarily open. But why this focus on the multilateral institutions as opposed to you know other more complex institutions? but not necessarily the big universal multilateral institutions. Because the, the nature of the problems that one has to deal with today are global. I see. Uh, there's, they're, they're not, they're, these are not issues, you know, the, the issue of, of climate change as an example. Again, I'll go back to it, or the, the threat of pandemics. Are, these are not issues which can be isolated to any one region of the country. Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is, that if they have affected one part of the world, it's only an airline away, an air ride away before that those problems will be in your own backyard, and you need global institutions in order to deal with them. Well, what's interesting, and I take your point, but what's interesting is that let's take climate change. The fact is, many analysts have pointed to the significant change in the way in which global interests have attempted to attack the problem of climate change, what was seen to be Kyoto Protocol and, you know, kind of top-down meeting of the uh, main countries, all countries in fact, uh, has now shifted to a kind of bottom-up uh, national initiatives that seem to, you know, include private sector actors, foundations, NGOs, you name it, right? So this doesn't look like the old multilateral institutions. <laughs> the fact is, there's no, there is no doubt uh, that there has been a fundamental change in opinion around the world. Uh, that fundamental change has occurred partially because of huge storms, partially because of, of the changes in the in melt, the melting of the Arctic ice and the effect on the global oceans. Uh, but it, it, it also was really the result of, for instance, countries like China suddenly coming to grips itself uh, that this, it was being affected, but only economic policies were, were creating this. It's the same thing is happening within the United States. So there has been a change in public opinion. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, public opinion cannot 
create global agreements. Public opinion cannot monitor global agreements. Public opinion cannot, and I think this will eventually uh, come, uh, cannot essentially uh, have sanctions if people don't live up to global agreements. And those are all going to be necessary if we're going to fight climate change. Ultimately, the uh, understandings that governments come to between themselves uh, and the public opinion that lie behind those governments coming to those actions require international institutions to enforce them. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's been true in everything else that we deal with, and it's going to be the same thing with climate change. I noticed, uh, shifting a little bit over to the financial side, that while you praised the Financial Stability Board, you also suggested it needs to be institutionalized. But doesn't it appear to be doing the job necessary that it, it was created for uh, just a few years ago? Well, <laughs> as you just said, I am a huge fan. Of, uh, of the Financial Stability Board, and the Financial Stability Board, um, as you know, is not a multilateral institution. It was a creation, and still is, a creation of the G20. Right. Um, uh, what they have done, however, they've reached out, they've created constituencies, but it does not have the same kind of membership that, for instance, the, you know, the United Nations or any of the Bretton Woods institutions has. But you're absolutely right. It has done a tremendous job. Uh, and it's done that because having had a very small uh, inner circle, which that's what was created by the, the G20, it was forced to reach out. Mm -hmm. And the financial stability reached out really to the financial wings of many of the governments going beyond the G20. And as a result, when it spoke, it was able to speak for a much wider body than itself. Now, as we see the way the banks have fought back, uh, in terms of global regulation, when we see that, that as financial cycles change, uh, all of a sudden the number of financial institutions desire for this kind of regulation changes with it, um, it's clear that the Financial Stability Board has got to play a much larger role, and in my opinion, uh, it's going to require to have the same kind of treaty uh, support uh, that uh, the other large members of the financial architecture, such as the IMF, the World Bank. Mm -hmm. But uh, again, another actor that seems to have had some real clout and, and assistance is the OECD. But as you know, even though the OECD is a is an international institution, it's certainly not multilateral in any sense in the universal sense of, of the word, and yet it too seems to have been, you know, an increasingly effective player in the global governance game. Yes, it is, and, I, and you're right, it doesn't have full global membership, but it operates primarily on, on the quality of its work, on the quality of the, the influence that it can exercise, and, it, and I must say under Angel Gloria, it does that it really does this remarkably well. But there is a difference between it and the Financial Stability Board, and that is the OECD is not attempting to regulate financial institutions. Uh, and the financial institutions have shown themselves to be remarkably uh, <laughs> difficult uh, to regulate, <laughs> explain 2008. I'm trying to be as <laughs> I'm trying to be as quiet as I can and my words are <laughs> as polite as I can. <laughs> So, uh, I mean, uh, your hope then is, I take it, it kind of as a last perspective on the G20, that your hope is that we will see greater attention being paid to the multilateral institutions 
and then presumably the hope would be from your side that we will see a greater collective effort being put uh, towards some of these uh, very difficult global issues. Yes, at the time that people were looking at the reform of the United Nations, right? Um, those of us who had already basically advocated the creation of the G20 were very hard at work, and it was it was then publicly known. It had already been created at the finance minister's level. We were pushing at the leader's level. And it was quite interesting that a number of experts in a body of countries who were seeking to reform the United Nations essentially called for a separate body of some 20 countries who would be able to provide direction mm -hmm. uh, to, the, to the General Assembly. And I, what that is really the thesis behind the creation of the G20. In other words, uh, the G20 does not act only for the G20 countries. The G20 acts to strengthen those bodies which have universal membership, such as the multilateral institutions. And if it doesn't do that, then it's failing in really what should be one of its fundamental objectives. I see. I see. Well, uh, Paul, I really appreciate your willingness to spend a little bit of time with us. I hope people have the opportunity to read your remarks. I think they uh, are quite pointed in your examination of the G20. I look forward to hearing other uh, remarks from you in other settings about uh, the success of the G20 or what's needed to make the G20 successful. Well, you know, Alan, given that you and I have virtually growing up debating these issues between us. It's a pleasure to do it again. Uh, a real pleasure. Thanks very much, Paul. This Global Symmetry podcast was hosted by Alan Alexandrov, produced by Harmony Z, music by Kevin McLeod. For more information, check out globalsymmetryproject.com.